Mark chapter 12, and we're going to begin reading in verse 28. And it says there in Mark 12, 28, One of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he, Jesus, had answered them well, he asked him, Well, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him and said, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus says there is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said to him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. Father, I ask that you'll open our heart, our understanding to what uh, it means to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength tonight, Lord. And you'll give us that desire that only can come from the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that, Father, that you'll open our hearts and our understanding to your word. And you'll be with us here tonight and meet with us. And we ask that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're still in Jesus' final week of his life. And the prophecy that Jesus gave, actually, the parable at the beginning of this chapter, is being played out. You know, you look there in verse 7 of chapter 12. He said, But those husbandmen said amongst themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill or destroy him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. And that's what they're seeking to do. They're seeking to destroy our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening. And they're beginning to do that. Rather than just capture him, which is what they eventually do, they're trying to do it initially by setting these traps through these questions that they're asking him. And each one, the question they think the answer is going to have a noose on the end of it. And that'll happen to you. I, you know, I was writing this. I'd kind of forgotten about this. I remember back when I had just gotten saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. And I worked at this insurance company, and I worked there. I had a big change, so they saw they saw the before and after in a big time way at that insurance company. And so word got out about me there, and there was one of these executives that knew my dad. Actually, he actually knew my father, and his name was Fred. And so Fred was one of these staunch anti-charismatic Church of God types. So one day there's a crowd, I'm talking to a crowd, it's a couple executives and other people that work there. I'm standing in the midst of like three or four people like that. And he, he just asked me, he says, oh, John. So he acts like he's real friendly towards me. Those your dad. Oh, yeah. So I hear you got the Holy Spirit and you speak in tongues. And I'm like, yes, sir. And he says, well, can you tell me then real nicely, you know, can you tell me what John 14, 26 says? I'm thinking, man, I've just been saved about three weeks. Uh, no. He goes, well, then you must not have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> because John 14, 26 says that when you have the Holy Spirit and he comes, he'll bring all things to your remembrance. And you didn't remember that verse. So you must not have the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. That was just for the apostles. That gift has passed away. And I'm thinking, man, I haven't quite got that far in my Bible reading yet to remember it even, you know. But anyways, I'll never forget the smile he had on his face. Because he's thinking, man, I trapped him and he fell for it and I got him. He humiliated me. I remember all I was convinced of through all that was is that I wasn't Jesus. That's the only thing I really was convinced of, and I just didn't quite have a great answer yet, but I'd work all that. But anyways, you know, the Lord didn't have that problem. So he's shown the wisdom of God throughout this chapter we've seen with the questions that have been asked him where they're trying to snare him. And he's turned the tables every time. And this scribe here we see in verse 28, he recognizes the wisdom that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what it says in verse 28. One of the scribes, having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well. Now, when you read Matthew's account of the same story, it says when the scribe asked Jesus what is the first commandment, that he does it tempting him, testing him. But here in Mark, it says he asked, we just read, because he perceived that he had answered well. So which is it? And I'm saying it's both. So he's still of one of the crowd that is trying to trap Jesus and tempt him and test him and see him fall. But here in Mark, I think 
we see that the implication is that this guy is beginning to see that there's something different about Jesus, that he's just not an ordinary man, that he's just not this ordinary carpenter that they've all been sneering at, that there's something special, there's something different about him because of the way he's able to give these answers. So the scribes are lawyers. They're like experts at the law. They make it their business to know that law left and right. And I think the reason they set this guy out to ask Jesus that question is, number one, he knows the law extremely well. And the other thing is, I think they could kind of tell he had a little bit more spiritual sense about him than most of them did. And so it says he perceived he answered their question well. And here what he's saying is he heard Jesus reasoning with the Sadducees. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees would get in these arguments over the resurrection. But this guy's like, man, this simple man here that hasn't been to one of our schools or whatever else, he gave an answer that I never could have thought up, and I know the law really well. And not only that, he took their own scriptures, the Pentateuch, and used that to answer them and gave him this simple but effective answer that shut them up. And I think he's gaining his respect here. The other thing we need to remember is we tend to think of the scribes and Pharisees, all of them, we just kind of tend to just lump them into they're just bad people because they're constantly being talked about. They're giving Jesus a hard way to go. And you just think, well, man, those guys don't have a chance. All the woes that were pronounced on them, I mean, it's whoa, whoa, whoa. They're in big time trouble. But what we need to remember is the New Testament tells us many of them became believers. So in John 3 Nicodemus, we need to remember, it says he was one of the Pharisees. And at the resurrection, I mean, he's one of them that was involved in the burial of Jesus. He became a believer. Nicodemus did. In Acts 6-7, it says that a great company, a great number of the priests were obedient to the faith. And in Acts 15-5, it tells us that a certain sect of the Pharisees which believed. So they weren't all unbelievers. They weren't all people that never came to the faith. And what we need to remember about that is we need to remember not to despise anyone just because they seem to be an unbelieving, say, a priest or a minister. So not many of them, I don't believe, will ever be saved or listen just because of the position they've taken and the training they've had. But that doesn't mean that none will. It hadn't been too long when I was back to my early days I was working at that insurance company and where I lived I had to take a bus to go downtown every day and it was about a half an hour ride and it just so happened I sat next to this guy and was reading my Bible and got to talking to him well he was an ex-archbishop of Columbus sitting there and so I'd just be like well, here's a good way to figure out what even though I grew up Catholic I'm thinking I'm kind of wondering how they came to their position so I would ask him questions that's the way I would approach it. I'd say, could you tell me, what do you think about salvation? And he'd give me his answer, which basically there was no Bible quoted. It was all philosophy. And then I'd say, well, what do you think about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What do you think about divine healing? What do you think about this, the things I was learning? And I'm saying, listen to that. Then I would give him back the verses that I had learned. And I remember he was impressed with that. He's like, wow, you know a lot of Bible. And I'm thinking, well, it isn't because I'm so smart. It's just the place I go to, the church I go to, unlike the Catholic church I went to all those years, they actually teach the Bible and teach that you can believe what it means. But I'm saying these conversations with this man went on. And he was open to what I was saying. He didn't get mad. He didn't get upset. We didn't argue with each other. So I'm saying I didn't have him, you know, like, repent in the aisle of the bus, you know, <laughs> on the way to work one day. But I'm saying you don't know when someone's open like that, despite their position or where they're at, if you can share with them and they're open and listen and, and it's not like they're coming back on you. You know, you don't want to cast your pearls before the swine. But if somebody's not acting like swine, I mean, you don't know what happens to somebody like that down the road. So you can't just write them off automatically. Amen? I think that's the way we have to look at that. So like I said, I think this scribe here in Mark 12, 28, he seems to be more spiritually minded than most because he really marks implying that he's honestly seeking the answer to his question. And you notice Jesus doesn't accuse him, even though it says he comes tempting him. He doesn't accuse him of hypocrisy like he does the Pharisees in verse 15 of chapter 12. He accuses them of being hypocrites. Why are you tempting me, you hypocrites? He didn't say that to this guy. When it says he perceived that he answered them well, that Greek word for well is kalos, and a lot of times it's used of a beautiful young girl. The point is, when it says he answered them well, it doesn't mean clever. It doesn't mean like he answered them a way just to get out of the trap that they were trying to set for him. He's saying he understands when he heard that answer that he gave them a good answer. He gave them a wholesome answer, a satisfying answer. 
He's recognizing that Jesus is giving him an answer that it makes sense spiritually with the law and in every way. And so I think he's coming here to trap him and test him. That's what it says in Matthew. But I also think he's coming here with an honest question. And I think he's anticipating from what he's seen so far in the Lord Jesus Christ that he's going to get another satisfying answer to one of the biggest questions of life. What is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest thing we can do for God? And that's something that these guys would argue. What was the importance of the commandments? Which ones were more important than others? I mean, there were 613 commandments. 365 of them were prohibitions. 248 of them were positive commandments. So you have all the thou shalt not and you shouldn't do this, but then you also had the positive ones, far outnumbered by the negative ones, but you had the positive ones about this is what you should do. And the rabbis had them broken down into what they called heavy and light commandments. And the ones that were heavy were the ones that were the most serious, the most essential, and that carried the biggest penalties. He didn't want to violate those. And Jesus, we say, he used that same language. That was just kind of the language of the day. In Matthew 23, 23, he said unto them, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted what he says are the weightier matters of the law. And what he's telling them is what you guys consider weightier, all this outward observance and all these rituals. He's saying, you got it wrong. There are weightier matters of the law that God considers weightier. But the point is, that's just kind of the way these people were reasoning. There was lighter and weightier matters. And so the Jews back then, they're always trying to reduce all of these 600 and some commandments. Can you just reduce it down into one overarching principle that we can live by? So there's this story. It's not a story. It's the truth. But this Rabbi Hillel, he's one of them we talked about when we talked about divorce and remarriage. He was 20 years before Jesus. And a man came to him and he says, listen, can you teach me the Torah? Do it while I'm standing on one foot. In other words, his point was, give me the Reader's Digest version. I don't want to hear all 613, but can you, in essence, boil it down to something I can take in while I'm standing in front of you on one foot? And here's was Hillel's reply. Here's what he said. He says, do not do to your neighbor that which is hateful to you. He said, this is the whole Torah. And he said, the rest is commentary. How you put that into practice. And I'm saying... That sounds a lot like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. The difference is he's approaching it from a negative sense. Don't do to others what you hate being done to you. What did Jesus say? He says positively, do unto others what you want done unto you. That's what he said. He says, do unto others whatever you would have them do to you. And he says, this is, Jesus said the same thing. He said, that's basically summing up all the law and the prophets. That's what it says, Matthew 7, 12. This is the law and the prophets. So what was Jesus' answer to this man's question of the greatest commandment of all? Well, look at it again here in verses 29 and 30, and it says this. Jesus answered him when he asked him, which is the first commandment, the greatest. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Jesus didn't give him some obscure verse that nobody knew about. The answer that he gave him, it was the most written, the most spoken, and the most well-known verse in all the Hebrew Bible. Because what he quoted there, maybe you've got the reference in your Bible, is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5, what's known as the Shema. And the Shema was recited by every single Jew twice a day. Let me say pious Jews. I don't know that every single one. They were supposed to. They were supposed to recite it once in the morning and once in the evening. And if you've ever seen pictures, if you got one of those Bible dictionaries, those phylacteries, they call them, the little frontlet things on their head, and they put it on their arm, they would also write it on these little tiny pieces of parchment, put them in these little leather square covering there, or a little, little roll on their arm they would, and they'd have these thongs, leather thongs that they would attach them to so that they'd have the word right in front of them, or if they crossed their arm, it'd be over their heart is the way they looked at it. And it still goes on today. I worked for this Jewish doctor and his wife in Louisville, and they had those little, they weren't leather, but they, they'd put them kind of crossways across every one of their doorways. And I asked them what was in there, and that's what they had in there, the Shema. And these people weren't even religious. They were irreligious. That's just what the Jews did. It was just the respect, I guess, they had for the Lord. So here in Mark, 
That's how Jesus answers the scribe's question by quoting the Shema. What's interesting is you've got the same account of Matthew. Matthew leaves off the hero Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. But it's here in Mark. Why would that be? Do you know why? Because Matthew's writing to who? He's writing to Jews. They're not having problems with idolatry. They know who the one God is. There's no problem there. Mark, though, was writing to Gentiles. And so it's critical that he defines who the God they are supposed to love is. And that's like in America today. You know, if you say love God, I mean, that is open to everybody's interpretation, isn't it? And everybody's got their own version of God. Many of them. But Mark's telling them here, he's telling them, there's Gentiles, look, you served many gods before, but I'm telling you, there is only one God. And one God only. And he is who? The God of the Old Testament, which is going to tell them also what? He is the Holy One of Israel. The only God and the only holy God, and he is going to judge sin. I mean, that's in essence to me what I would get out of that. He's <laughs> abortion, homosexuality, fornicators, drunkards, liars, lustful, angry people. This is the God you're dealing with. Not all this God that people are making up in their imaginations that they have in America today. Well, this is what I think God is like. I don't think, I think God loves everybody. Well, no, he's saying it's the God of the Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, and he's found in the Old Testament. That's all they had at the time. They're writing this. The one that all men are going to have to do with. The same God that we saw in Isaiah. You remember we talked about that? The high and lifted up one on a throne, surrounded by those angels, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The one that will cause you to cry out, woe is me, for I am undone. That's what we're saying here. And I'm saying, try doing that on an election cycle in America and see if you get office. When you say, God bless America, and let me tell you who this God is that I'm talking about. See if that'll get you elected. I don't think it will. Say, God bless America, oh, just, did you hear what he said? Oh, that was so good. The president or whoever, whichever president. God bless America warms my heart yeah and you put a little definition behind that and everybody's heart ain't going to be warm towards you anymore you're going to feel a lot of cold hearts coming at you that is the greatest commandment and i'm saying we need to understand then what jesus means when he says you shall love the lord thy god with all thy heart soul mind and strength i think eric alexander had it right when he says there's three aspects of what jesus is talking about here so he's saying this love that we're supposed to have for the Lord is, number one, it's a commanded love. And number two, it's a committed love. And number three, it is a comprehensive love. Those three things, I think, are in this text here. The commanded love. He's saying you've got to love the Lord your God. And the God of the Old Testament and Jesus here, they're not making it an option. It wasn't an option in the Old Testament, and he's not making it an option now. So he's saying, thou shalt love. It's a duty. It's an obligation. It is a command to love the Lord our God. Remember, years back, I heard these tapes Brother Hampton gave me by this guy named Paris Reedhead. And on one of them, he says, how can you command somebody to love? You think about that. And I'm saying, so we have trouble with that here in America, don't we? You know why? that you can command somebody to love, it's because of the influence of our culture with movies and music. We tend to think of love as what? When you talk about I love you, you think about it as a romantic feeling or you think it's an emotion, something that you can fall in and out of. I mean, here's a couple old songs that it's part of our society we grew up in. Now, these are a little dated. The old people will like this, but you know, they had that old Elvis Presley song that he sang. I can't help falling in love with you. I mean, he could sing that song, but that's what he, I just can't help falling in love. So it's like this thing you fall in and out of. Or the Righteous Brothers, you all remember the Righteous Brothers, and you've lost that loving feeling was a song they had. <laughs> you lost it, you had it, but you lost it. So you fall in and out of it, you lost it, and those were the big hits of the day. So we tend to look at love that way. It's an emotion and it's a feeling. And when he's saying, thou shalt love the Lord thy God, you look inside yourself and you're like, I just don't get the warm fuzzies when I think about that. And you think, man, I'm just not really sure if I love God. I don't get goosebumps. And the devil sometimes, I think, will hassle people that way. You just don't really have this feeling about God. Are you sure you really love him? 
Because we're getting it confused in that way. And the Bible concept of love is not so much, it's not really at all in a sense, how we feel, but how do we live. Who is first in my life? And on the basis of that, how do I treat other people? Because Jesus never said, if you love me, it'll make you feel good about me. Did he ever say that? He said, if you love me, he will keep my words. If any man love me, he'll keep my words. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. I don't really see anything about feelings in there. I would say, do you love the Lord? The question to ask yourself is, are you committed to putting God first in your life? That's how you can tell in your thoughts, in your plans, in your words, in your actions, in your relationships, and not just on Wednesday and Sunday and prayer meeting night, but every day, all of the time. That's the way it should be, every day and in every aspect of our life. We make God our supreme determining factor in everything we do. That's what he's talking about when he commands us to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not an emotion, not a feeling, and there will be feelings. You all experience feelings about the Lord at times? I do, a lot. I'm not saying they can't be there, but they can come and go, can't they? Like we said Sunday, I don't think Jesus was having all these romantic thoughts and feelings about God and all this emotion when he's down there in that dungeon chained in that iron. I don't think so. But I think he was committed to him in love. He'd made a commitment, committed to obeying him no matter what the cost. And how do you do that? How do we do that? Keep committed to him. And I say you got to keep the cross in view. I think that is key. Seeing the price that Jesus paid for us, putting himself and his feelings aside in order to deliver me or you from eternal death. What that took. And for me, I'm just saying, I made that commitment to the Lord. It, I, I felt nervous. I felt anxious. Because I'm getting into a territory here of people I used to mock. But I remember at my desk that day, I committed myself to him as my Savior because I could see what he did for me on the cross. I was committing myself to that. And ever since then, I'm saying the thought of how can I turn my back on him after what he's done? What has he ever done wrong to me? It's not based on some emotion or some feeling. I mean, they come. So I can't command my feelings. And God can't command them in that sense. But guess what we can command is our will. And we can commit ourselves to putting God first, no matter how we feel. And that's the kind of love I believe that he's talking about here. So we're saying first it's a commanded love. And I think the second thing is, is it's a committed love. What we see in the Bible is, we talked about this, God commits himself to be our God and to love us. And he asks us to commit ourselves to him to be his people. And that is the basis of all true love, isn't it? Commitment. This love that he's commanding and asking of us, it's not a temporary love, but it's a what? It's implied in this verse, what Jesus is saying. It's a lifelong commitment. And isn't that the basis of a marriage relationship? You're not committed to your spouse, are you? I would hope not because of their looks, because of the way they make you feel, because of how much money they have. Is that why you're committed to your spouse? Because all of that can easily come and go, can't it? And if your love's based on that, and that's what happens in the world, then their love falls off. Can't help falling in love with you until you lost all your money, your looks, and everything else. That's the way it is. But love is saying it's in sickness or in health, richer or poorer, better or worse, on and on and on. That's the kind of love commitment. True love is not committed just because of what it gains. But yet we have in our country today, young people think they understand what love's all about. They're going to show this older generation, hey, we're the love generation. And hey, I have no idea. They can't make that commitment, can they? So many people today living together afraid they're going to fall out of love or let's just be friends. We're going to live together and we're just going to be friends. They can't make that marriage commitment. I think behind all that is a divided heart, unwilling to make a full commitment. And what I want to say is a divided heart like that will lead to treason. Benedict Arnold, 
Would you say Benedict Arnold, if somebody's past high school and had a half a decent history teacher, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Benedict Arnold, you'd think a traitor. But what people don't know is Benedict Arnold wasn't always a traitor. He was an important part of George Washington's army. He was actually a respected, I don't know if he was a general or what, critical in the battle at Valley Forge to them winning that. He was shot in the leg fighting the British. He was wounded in the leg. But what happened was he wasn't fully committed to the cause because he got passed over for a promotion by somebody else. And all of a sudden, he's like, I ain't so happy with the way this all is going. And the British come to him. They find out, I think about that, offer him a big sum of money to start helping them out. And that's what happened. Greed, his hurt feelings, and pride caused him to have a divided heart. And we need to see that love, committed love to the Lord, is not going to be divided by greed or pride or lust or anything else. That's why it says in Proverbs, I believe, 4.23, the warning is keep thy heart with all diligence. You better keep guard on it because out of it are the issues of life. Things start coming in there and you're going to be like Benedict Arnold. You're going to get a divided heart and next thing you know, you're going to commit treason, be a traitor to the Lord's cause. Because we have to look at it this way. Jesus was fully committed. I'm saying love, true love that he's talking about here will be fully committed. And he was fully committed to us, wasn't he? He committed himself to the cross. He's like, it doesn't matter how unpleasant it gets. And it couldn't have been any more unpleasant than it was. But he was committed to us to the end. And so his commitment in love to his people was to the point of sweating blood, crying out on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Committed to the point of death. That is his commitment to you tonight if you're a Christian. And we have to say, are we that committed in love to him? Because that's what it means to be a Christian, doesn't it? Committed to him, to the point of death. Do we put him ahead of ourselves in what we do? That's what he's talking about here. Paul said in Acts 20, 24, he says, I don't count my life dear to me so that I may finish my course with joy. He's saying, the Lord's given me a task. And in my love for Him, I'm going to finish that task by His grace. I'm going to put that task in what He wants me to do and my love and commitment to Him ahead of even my own life. He says, I don't even count my life dear to me because He knew it was going to end. And isn't that what it says? And basically Ephesians 5 says that Jesus sacrificed himself in love for the church because the context of that is that is how a husband is to love his wife. So true love makes sacrifice and commitment and true love puts the other ahead of themselves. Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying if you really love your wife, you're going to put her interest ahead of your own at times. As much as you can, you're going to sacrifice you can't always do that, but that is what it's saying there. That's what true love is. Peter. Jesus comes to him after the resurrection when he's on the shore. And what does he say? He says, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? Three times he asked him that. And every time, what was his answer? This is how you can show me. What did he say? Feed my sheep. And what's he saying? If you're saying you love me, if we're saying we love the Lord, what was he telling Peter? And I'm saying what you need to do then, Peter, is you put my interest first. Isn't that what he was telling him? Because that may not be what you want to do with the rest of your life, but I'm asking you, Peter, if you love me, you're going to demonstrate it by putting me first. Because he went on to say this to him. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, saying this to Peter, Jesus, he says, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. And don't a lot of young people do that? I'm a Christian, but I'm just doing whatever I want to during the week. They don't take into the Lord's consideration he may have something else he wants them to do, or that they're just kind of really wasting their life playing around a lot. And that's what Jesus said. He said, I was saying to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. He says, but when you are old, Peter, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. You know, he's talking about he got crucified upside down. What's going to enable Peter to joyfully do that? It's because he's got a committed love to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's what's going to have that happen. So we're saying it's a commanded love. It's a committed love to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the last thing we said is it's a comprehensive love. And by that I mean there is not one part of our being, no aspect of our lives, nothing that should not be involved in our love to God. Because Jesus didn't answer that man, and he didn't just say, thou shalt love the Lord, did he? And he didn't just say, thou shalt love the Lord with all your heart, and leave it at that. He didn't just say that. But he said, you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. In other words, nothing's left out. Some people have what's called limited car insurance. Because the state of Kentucky says you can have just a certain amount of car insurance, and we're good with that. Basically, you've got to cover the other guy. But what happens? you got limited car insurance. You get your car wrecked, and it's brand new, and you got limited. Guess what isn't covered, generally? Your car. But when you get comprehensive insurance, guess what's covered? Every possible conceivable issue, wreck, whatever else you get in with your car. They're going to cover your car, their car. And you're like, man, you know, you ask the guy, well, what if I total the car and it's my fault? Your insurance guy's like, no worries. We've got you covered. It's comprehensive. So that's what we're saying here. Jesus is telling us that he wants our love for him to be comprehensive. Nothing left out our total life. So he wants us bumper to bumper. I love having bumper to bumper warranties on side. I, I got peace of mind. Well, that's what he wants. He wants us. Our lives, bumper to bumper. So he wants us to give him our thoughts, our relationships, our businesses, our families, our entertainment, all of our lives. So he's saying, love him with your heart. And your heart is what? It's the core of your personality. It's where your will and your motives come out of. Because what do you say when somebody's just not really paying much attention or not trying real hard? What do you say? You say, his heart's not in this. His will, his motivation is just not there, right? And that's what he's saying. You've got to have your will, your motivation to love God, to obey him all the time. That's what he's talking about there in the soul, the seat of your emotions. Jesus said, my soul is troubled before his crucifixion. And your mind is your intellectual life. Now, some people, they act like, man, I don't want to get all deep studying the Bible and doctrine and all that. Well, I mean, you know, being an ignorant Christian, there's really no medals in heaven going to be given out for that. And you're going to meet a lot of people that they do value what their mind is, and they have thought about things a whole lot more than you have, and I'm saying they're going to eat you up. And you're not going to win them over very well when you don't have a good answer because you haven't taken the time to study. So he says we should love him with our mind because what's funny is I found people that they don't like quoting Scripture. I don't want to be that way. I'm not going to be all spiritual. They can quote tons of other stuff. To me, it's like worthless stuff, but it's sometimes worthless but complicated. And I'm thinking, there's nothing wrong with your mind, but you think some things are so deep, it's just because you don't want to understand it. He's saying we should love the Lord our God with our mind, our heart, our will, our mind, our strength. And that is how God wants everybody to relate to him. Every fiber of our being is his. So how many times have we heard that? And that's the problem. We've heard it so many times, it just doesn't impact us anymore when someone stands up here and says we're supposed to love God, all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, every day of the week. And we've heard that. So we've all figured out how that fits into our little lifestyle. And it just really doesn't impact it like it once did or should now. But it doesn't lessen the demand, does it, of what Jesus has said here. And so really we're back to Romans 12, and let's just look at that again tonight. If we could turn back to Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2, because it's in essence to me saying the same thing as what the Lord's saying here. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And Paul writes there on the basis of, hey, we stand by faith and our faithfulness to God. And as long as we're obedient to them. And he says, Romans 12, 1, I beg you, therefore, looking back in chapter 11, because of what he said there, I beg you, beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and how should that body be? It says, holy, acceptable unto God, which he says is your reasonable service. It's what you owe him. It's reasonable for him to expect that. In verse 2, he says, be not conformed to this world, 
but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Isn't he telling us there, you've got to get up on that altar and not get off, and God needs to have all of you with what he says, with the teaching that comes forth, with the reading that you have. And people here, some people do a good job of letting you know, man, what you just said wasn't quite right. They kind of correct you, and hey, you've got to receive that. That's all part of the package, isn't it? So, how can we tell if we have obeyed the command to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, if you turn back to Mark 12, look in verse 31. And what does it say there? He adds this in. He gave the one, the great commandments. That's all the guy asked for. And just like earlier, he's going the second mile and adding to it. In verse 31, Jesus says, And the second is like it, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And he says, There is none other commandment greater than these. Because when we have that true, consecrated, committed love to God, we will demonstrate it. How is it going to be demonstrated? By a true love for others. If you would turn from there and go back to 1 John chapter 4, that's what John says. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. And John writes there in 1 John 4:19, it says, We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Or we wouldn't be able to love him is what it's saying. In verse 20, he says, if a man say, I love God, so you can say that all you want to, but you say, I love God, and I get the goosebumps, but you hate your brother, John's pretty blunt. He says, that man is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment, he says, that we have from him. That he who loves God, so you love God, what must you also do? Love your brother. That's what it says. That's not hard to understand, is it? So we've got to put others ahead of ourselves. And we're all naturally selfish, aren't we? We don't have to be taught to be selfish. <laughs> and that's because of the fall. And so what he's saying here is, this is the best indicator that you've been born again and had a changed heart. You know, when the man came in Luke's account, Luke doesn't get into this. He's got a different account. He's got the story about the Good Samaritan. But he has a scribe coming to him in Luke and saying, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer is this story of the Good Samaritan. And the point of that whole thing is, is that it is not in man to help somebody out. And that Pharisee should have seen it. I'm not like that. I hate this guy. I'm not going to do a thing for him. And the point of all that is, is you've got to have your heart changed. And so you love God, so you need to have your heart changed, and then you can properly love your brother or your neighbor, either one. Otherwise, it's just really not going to be in there. You're in 1 John 4, if you look over in 1 John 3, look what he says there. 1 John 3 and verse 15, or look in verse 14, it says, We know that we have passed from death Unto life. In other words, we're born again. Why? Because we love the brethren. And he that loves not his brother, he's basically saying he is not born again. He still is abiding in death. Verse 15, this is strong. He says, whoso hates his brother, and hate has a lot of forms. But you do that, he says, you're a murderer. You hate somebody. You won't talk to somebody. You won't have anything to do with somebody. Is a murderer. And you know, he says, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And hereby, he says, we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And he says, because of that, we see that that's what love is. It's sacrifice, not feeling. And he says, when we see that, verse 16, he says, then we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have a need, and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him. He's saying, how can the love of God dwell in him? It's impossible. If you got God's nature in you, God never shut his bowels of compassions up to us. And so that's how you can tell, he's saying. You want to know if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? It's going to be demonstrated by you've got love for others. And he says, your neighbor in Mark 12. So if you go back there to Mark 12... The problem we're seeing in the world today, and it's becoming, I'm saying, a major problem in evangelical Christianity, is that Jesus has given us a definite order here. So in verse 30, at the end of that, he says, this is the first commandment, doesn't he? And the word means first. 
And in verse 31, he says, and the second is namely this. There's a definite order, and it's crucial. First things must be first. And I'm telling you, the world, it's always had it backwards. The world has all these things, the UN and all these councils, do whatever, all this one. How can we get each other to love each other? They got it backwards. But now the church is getting to be that way. It's getting to be, it's all about outreach, it's all about love, it's all about the, and hey, no problem with that. But you know what's left out most of the time? The gospel. I'm saying, what is the sinner's greatest need? Is it to have a free meal? Is it to have their house remodeled? No problem if they've got that need. But in doing that, what is the mission of the church? Is the mission of the church to be a going around and we remodel houses or we do this or we do that? I don't see that in the Bible. What is the great commission? It's to share the gospel. Now, if in doing that, Jesus fed people. So I'm not saying you can't do that. But Jesus fed people and also gave them the gospel, didn't he? And yet, that is lacking so many times. And I'm talking about the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is that you are a wicked sinner. You're going to hell. And however you want to present that, if the wrath of God abides on you and you need a Savior, look there. There's somebody. Point to the cross. What do you see in that? Tell them Jesus loves you. How does he love you? He loves you because the wrath of God was poured out on him. You can't leave wrath out and understand the love of God. And that's what needs to happen. Like I'm saying, I'm saying what I'm saying. I don't have any problem. If people have a need, you meet that need, no problem. But if you're going to do that, if the church is going to do that, now you want to go do it on your own, that's fine. But the church, the mission of the church is to spread the gospel. There's all kinds of organizations out there that have nothing to do with the gospel, that are nice people that help people out. And so what should distinguish us? Us. We've got a message to share. When persecution came on the church in Jerusalem and they were scattered abroad, they didn't go out and build huts for people. What did they do? They spread the word. That's what they did everywhere they went because they're like, these people are going to perish if we don't. You get around somebody, your best thing is not to let them feel good about themselves necessarily isn't it's the, i'm going to take this opportunity they may never have somebody share the truth about jesus christ with them and that's what i'm going to do lord willing if he opens that door and not try to be offensive about it and i'm saying it's reversed the world's got it reversed and it can't work i just saw this article today lebron james is at this thing at cedar point LeBron James Family Foundation, he's holding his daughter, and he gives this speech. There's all these families and kids out there, parents or whatever, and here's what he says. He says, I know there's a lot of tragic things happening in Charlottesville. We all know what happened there. And LeBron James says, I have this platform, and this is real humble. I'm somebody that has a voice of command, and the only way for us to get better as a society and for us to get better as people is love. And that's the only way we're going to be able to conquer something as one. Now, can anybody, honestly, what does that mean? Can you tell me what that means in concrete terms? I mean, okay. He went on to say, it's not about the guy that's the so-called president of the United States or whatever the case. It's not about a teacher that you don't feel like cares about what's going on with you every day. It's not about people that you just don't feel like want to give the best energy and effort to you. It's about us. It's about us looking in the mirror, kids all the way up to the adults, all of us looking in the mirror and saying, what can we do better to help change? And if we can all do that and give 110%, then that's all you can ask for. So, shout out to the innocent people in Charlottesville. Shout out to everybody across the world that just want to be great and just want to love. Thank you, and I love you all. I'm saying, honestly, what does that mean? I mean, what does that mean? You've got, you got to fill in all those definitions with that, don't you? What does that mean to love? Because I know what's really behind a lot of that. And what I'm saying is, there has got to be a standard to love. And God has given us a standard. And the world rejects it in so many ways. Because men think they're smarter than God. They got it all figured out. (laughs) We know what love is. And their love's twisted. And I mean, you could give so many examples of that. Because the world right now... You better not say out in public you spank your kids. 
The next thing you know, you'll get a knock on your door. And we're back to where we're not talking about child abuse, obviously. But they think that is love, that they're going to reason with a three-year-old. I'm saying, really? That's really love? And I'm saying, so they're smarter than God. And the world's defining what love is in that way, right? That's the way it is in our world. Whereas in Proverbs 13, 24, it says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. So who's smarter? Look at the way our world is right now. we got a bunch of rebellious people that absolutely hate authority, and they hate just about everybody, really. I mean, I'm watching some of that newsreel stuff on Charlottesville. I'm saying, they, you would almost think it's just these Nazi people that have hatred and violence and anger on their face. And I'm saying, I'm looking over here on the other side, and I didn't see a lot of smiles and pleasantness. I mean, it is just hatred and anger everywhere. And these are all the love people. On one side, they're going to smell. I don't think the Nazi people are going around. But the other ones are like, oh, we're all about love. All about love. And I've seen some pretty hateful looks there. Some real demonically angry, hateful looks. Or the world says, hey, who wants to have a child that's a burden and a disability? It's not fair to the child. It's not fair to the mother to have to raise that child. And I read another article today that because this widespread prenatal screening, the number of babies with Down syndrome has significantly decreased. In Iceland, they said they have eradicated, in Iceland, 300,000 people, they have eradicated Down syndrome almost 99.9%. It's almost 100% eradicated. And that is because 100% of the people almost that receive a positive test that their baby that is in the womb has Down syndrome, they terminate the pregnancy. That's how they've terminated it. Despite the fact that many people with Down syndrome can live full, healthy lives with a lifespan of 60 years. 60 years. The termination rate in the United States is 67%. In France, it's 77%. And so what is love? Is that love? They think it is. Because they think, oh, it's a lack of love. They would, they would call you a bigot and a religious whatever. And they think it's a lack of love that you're going to bring this child with his disability into this world. Really? I'm saying it's upside down, right? So when you don't love God, you don't have a standard on what love is. Everything becomes twisted. And when you make loving your neighbor and loving yourself first... And God's somewhere there in the back burner. You just don't know how to think about things. And I'm saying it's even in the church. So I just heard of a minister that was preaching, and he says this. Well, you can tell who the Christians are because we're approaching Halloween. You can tell who the Christians are in your neighborhood because they're the ones that have the curtains drawn and the lights out when it's Halloween. And the implication is they don't have any love because they're not handing out candy on the devil's holiday. I'm saying, really? And so the church shouldn't take a stand on a day like that? Because come to my house, my curtains will be drawn. We're all in the back part of the house. It's not a lack of love. I'm saying, the devil's holiday, and they won't take a stand against occult practices, even in their own churches, they won't take a stand on that. Halloween, other works in Satan. Instead, nobody wants to be legalistic. Nobody wants to appear unloving. And I'm saying, so we're talking about thou shalt love the Lord thy God has got to be number one. And if you love him, Deuteronomy 18, if you ever want to read that, makes the occult and witchcraft and necromancing and any other occult practice you want to put in, it says it's an abomination to the Lord. And so how can you love that and say you love God at the same time and not take a stand on it? So I'm saying all this one-sided messages of places about grace and love and forgiveness. And it's not so much that that's bad. We preach on that here. But when you leave the other side out of holiness and demonic influences on life, then things become out of balance and, and out of kilter. And people don't really understand. They've got a distorted view even in the church then on what love, grace, and mercy and forgiveness means. It's got to be a balanced message. So I'm not saying it says thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, but true love is what? It's 
bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So true love is going to help others in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ when it doesn't pay. You're going to lend when you know somebody isn't going to pay you back. And listen, when you read about the love in the Sermon on the Mount, and you read about the love in the Bible, and when you read about the love in the book of Acts, that's supernatural. That's the way that happens. That's not going to happen without the Holy Spirit, because only He can produce that. And so, to end this tonight, what we have here in this account, in Mark 12... That scribe answers Jesus in verse 32. He says, Master, you've said the truth. He sees it. For there is one God. There is none other but he. In verse 33, and you should love him with all your heart, understanding, soul, with all your strength. And he's saying to love your neighbor as yourself is more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's saying all that outward stuff is meaningless unless it's motivated by a true, unselfish love for God and your neighbor. He gets it. And it says, and when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, that word means intelligently. He gave a wise answer. He said unto him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, is what he tells that man. You know what he didn't see? You know what's keeping him out of the kingdom? Is he needs to see, I can't do what I clearly see I should do. And you're the only help I have. And cried out to Jesus to come, I need your help. So he's saying, you're not far from the kingdom, and he had not taken that step of trust. And how many in here know that they're hearing the truth? They know the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. They know without that commitment to him, they're going to perish in hell. They know that. Maybe they're not far from the kingdom, but what if you never make it in? We don't know what happens to this guy. He may or may not. We're kind of left hanging in a way. But what a tragedy. If you get there and God has opened up your understanding, God has brought this man to this point, to the door. Jesus is at the door. What if he's not willing ever to walk through? What if you're out there knowing you're going to perish and you're not willing to walk through? You're close. It's not going to do you any good in the end, is it? Than that person out there that was so far away and never heard a thing. And that would be my final plea is take that step. God will never let you down. Give yourself to Him, and He will give Himself to you. That's the commitment He'll make to you. Amen? Amen. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to have a love that is committed and a love that is comprehensive in our life. We need to think about that seriously. Amen? Amen. And only God can do it for us. It's not going to be in our strength. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the words you've given us through the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth that's presented to us. And I ask, Father, that for all of us, you'll give us hearts to walk in your truth and to be fully committed to you and to be fully committed to obeying you in all things, Lord. And I ask that you'll just open up all those little secret places that we keep hidden and show us, Lord, where we need to make that commitment. And in the end, we can hear, as we've heard so many times, that you'll say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I thank you that you'll do that for us, Lord, that you're worthy of our love and our full commitment, and because you gave us that yourself, and I thank you for that. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.